You're listening to Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. If we haven't met before, I was a divorce lawyer in New Jersey for 15 years. I'm currently the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. My guest today is Angie Kitko. Angie is the vice president of Mike Kitko Executive Coaching. Mike and Angie help people with imposter syndrome to become as powerful on the inside as they appear on the outside. Welcome, Angie. Hey, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. You have a lot of experience, I'm going to call it, life experience to share with us today. And I thank you in advance for that because I know some of it must be hard stuff to talk about. But I have to ask you something first. Why isn't it Mike and Angie Kitco executive coaching? That's okay. That's actually a really funny story. And it's a conversation that my husband and I have had several times over. Um, so when, oh gosh, this is, this is going to have to go pretty far back. Um, I have a very extensive history with being an active addiction. I was an active pharmaceutical addiction for 17 years. And prior to that, active street drug addiction. And two years ago, when I finally made the decision to get clean after the total collapse of my family and near divorce and all kinds of just wake up calls, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I decided that I had this power to help people and I was so overwhelming wanting, wanting to, to make my mark in the world on my own that I, he had his business, he was doing his thing, and I went off on my own trying to do my own thing um, with coaching and speaking and writing. And so he had his brand completely built. And when I realized it was the beginning of this year, I went through a little bit more, another existential crisis, if you will, of saying, what am I doing? He has all of this stuff developed. He's a content creation machine. Why am I trying to reinvent the wheel when everything is right here? So that's when I approached him and said, hey, listen, we can do this together. Like, this this can be our thing. It doesn't need to be a you and me separate. And he said, that makes sense to me. But all the branding was already there. And we've kind of been playing around with, like, when we get our, now that the first book has been published, when we make our public figure page, is it Mike and Angie? So we're playing around with a bunch of different things like that with our publicist and our marketing company. But for right now, we're going to keep it as it's known. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. I'll be I'll be watching out for that. Or maybe one day you'll just have, a, they'll, they'll still be the Mike Kidco Executive Coaching, but maybe you'll have Angie Kidco Executive Coaching. But we don't have yeah, to go there yet. <laughs> Why don't we back up a little bit? Because um, so I'll just let everybody know that you and I became acquainted with each other because we went to a personal development seminar together about a year ago. And then we became friends on Facebook. So we're Facebook friends. And yeah. I see things you post here and there. And you had said something really interesting that struck me that I didn't know about you. And you had you had made some funny comment about how, you know, years ago, back in the day, if you were your old self, you know, you would have been like strung out somewhere and, you know, doing drugs. And I was like, what? What? Like, what did she say? I didn't know that. 
And what I really love about the show and why why it's called Wake Up Call is that I really like talking to people that have overcome adversity and have had some interesting, not always good, positive experiences, but interesting experiences that they've overcome and have gone on to live great lives. And I think that you're a perfect example of that. So that's what I want to hear about is, um, I guess, and it's not just addiction that you've, you've experienced. Like you, you didn't have an easy time growing up, right? Right. That's correct. I I was actually reflecting this morning and last night on, on the show today and something really struck me. And it was that my life has been divided into four very distinct, very different segments as a young child, my my mom passed away when I was really young. I was six years old, and she, she passed away. Um, I was in a very abusive household. My father was a heroin addict. Um, around seven, eight years old, I was able to pull needles out of his arm and prevent overdoses. My, uh, my grandmother, my mom's mom, killed herself after my mom's death, and I actually was the one who found her dead. Oh, I can't um, even imagine that. It, it it was so my my childhood my early years were that of the abused neglected um, poverty stricken child and when I, I always knew that that's not who I that's not who I was destined to be so I left home around fourteen years old and got emancipated was on my own working but. Then I went into the just out-of-control teenager. I was doing drugs. I was dealing drugs. I was spending my nights in nightclubs, snorting Coke in the bathroom. I mean, it was, it was insane. And then I went into this whole other segment of my life where I became, I met my now husband in community college because I got emancipated, had to drop out of ninth grade, but took a college entrance exam and got into the local community college in Rockville, Maryland. So I met my now husband there. And we bought the townhouse and we got we're married. Going, and we we're going way too yeah. fast here. Way yeah. too fast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know to you, you're like, oh, that's old news. But I haven't yeah. heard this before. So well, I want to back up. So even, so when you were in the dysfunction in your household with dad, you just instinctively knew that you had to get out of there? Or, you know, what? tell me what it was that made you figure out that you needed to remove yourself from that because a lot of people just grow up with it and they just think well this is just how life is and it's sort of normal it becomes normalized well that that was definitely an aspect of what I I I thought and I believed but there was just something intuitive in me I've always been a super intuitive person very in, in touch with I know this and I know this is what I want um, so I was, I, that was the dysfunction was all I knew. And that actually played into my adult life as a mom and that dysfunction, I carried it over, but I just, I would go to friends' houses who had these, these warm, um, homes with bedrooms and they had food. Mm-hmm. Like we had to yeah. steal food as children. And I always, I always like, I tell my, my friends and my husband now that I would pick these little experiences up as a child and say, I want this. And I would put it into my little brain and, and start to cultivate it to make it happen. So it was just intuitive. Like that this is not who I am. Like I meant to be something more. 
Yeah. It's really hard to explain. It's just intuitive. I think that that's the difference from the people that I've spoken to and some of my own experiences as well. I think that's the difference is you you actually have to believe that things mm-hmm. could be different. Because if you didn't, right. you wouldn't even try, right? Right, right. I, from what I understand, my, my stepmother, um, her two sisters, who I'm very close to, I call them my aunt, they said that they always knew, when they met me when I was like three or four years old, they always knew that I was different. They always knew that I was destined for something larger than this, this small, poverty-stricken life that I was living in that we were forced into. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's interesting. I uh, People have said that about me, too. That's interesting. Oh, wow, that's funny. <laughs> but we're not talking about me. So so how did you know that there was this thing you could do called emancipation? It kind of reminds me of some old Drew Barrymore movie where she divorced her parents. I forget the that name of it. That is too funny. Let me tell you, so Drew Barrymore is one of my idols. And when I was a, when I was a young girl, I read her book, Little Girl Lost, And I saw how she took all of that pain and made it a purpose. And I always said, I, one day I will meet Drew Barrymore. And one day I want to be like Drew Barrymore with her sobriety and stuff. So that's, that's a whole side, side note. But, um, that's funny that you said that. That is funny that I mentioned that. And you will, you will meet her. Yes. And you'll, you'll have to call me because I got to hear about it. Um, (laughs) So how did you know that you could be emancipated? Because I feel like there's so many kids out there that are like, they hate their parents, you know, don't maybe don't experience what you experience, but, you know, just hate their parents. Who thinks, you know what, I'm going to get emancipated? Yeah, I, I actually, I didn't know it was so I've had so many divine interventions in my life, Christina. It's been, it, it, it's been so fun. Um, I, I left home at 14 and I had a, an older boyfriend, a questionable age difference. But he had a safe place for me to stay, and he was willing to take that risk with me, which, you know, I'm very grateful for. So I left home. I moved in with him, and so I went from Virginia to Maryland, moved in with him, and was able to get a job. And I'm not – I was. I must have been 15 by then, 14 and a half, 15. I was able to get a job. There was this little cafe in Bethesda, Maryland called Sutton Place Gourmet. It was a grocery store that had a cafe. And I worked – school hours. So there was a local attorney by the name of James Demma that used to come in every day and he would order a cappuccino and cheese bread. And one day he said, he, uh, he said, Hey Angie, how come you're never in school? And something said, tell him your story. Yeah. And I told him my story and said, you know, I had to escape an abusive father and all of these things that I you know, blurted out my entire story to this man eating his cheese bread. A couple of days passed, and he came in and sat down at the counter, and he slid a letter across to me. I'm going to get emotional. Aww. He slid a letter across to me, and I opened it, and it said our firm would like to represent you in an emancipation procedure free of charge. Pro bono is what it said. And I was like, what does this even mean? And as he explained it, I just lost it. Wow. And they, they sure did. The, the, uh, that law firm took care of me and they became my guardian at life. It was That's amazing. Crazy. Yeah. So when yep. you become emancipated, are, do you, you just, you don't, you're like an 18 year old. You're like an adult. It's not like you didn't have sure. a guardian, did you? 
No, no. I had a guardian, a guardian of my property, so guardian ad litem, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, because when my mom died, she worked for the government, so there was pension and social okay. security there that I didn't know I was getting, but my dad was stealing I from me. I see. Um, so because I was still a minor, it was in my best interest to have somebody else looking over that money, which I completely agree with that that was that was a good good decision. Yeah. Wow. It does sound like you had sort of a guardian angel, somebody looking over you. And, and you know, I really do believe that everything happens for a reason. And I'm going to go out on a, limb, on a limb here and say you do, too. Because what if you had not told that gentleman your story? Oh, absolutely. And there have been other instances where something has just said, just spill your gut to somebody. Just tell them. Just be honest. And that's when, when I started sharing my story on social media. It was a... Yeah. And so you were how old? 14 at the time? I was 14 when I left home. When the emancipation procedure went through, I was about 15 and a half. It was probably right after I turned... It was about a year after I left home, so I was 15 and a half. So when you left home, you basically were just a minor that just left home and was living somewhere else. Yes. So I, I had something was just going ridiculously crazy. Like I could feel that there was something not like everything wasn't already wrong. We never had a stable place to live. We didn't have food, but I knew something bigger was happening. And I found out later that there was some, uh, some prostitution going on in the house mm. and, um, Something said, you just have to go. Like, it was literally a voice saying, you have to go. So I remember telling my boyfriend at the time, hey, I need you to meet me at the bus stop at 9 o'clock tomorrow or whatever time, seven thirty, eight o'clock. And I got in the car and I looked at him and I said, I cannot go back there ever again. And he said, okay. Well, let me and ask- we drove off. Let me ask you this, and I think that this is something you've you've referenced on. I've seen some YouTube videos with you and Mike. And mm-hmm. and he said that there was sexual abuse in one of your pasts. Was that something that you experienced in the home? Yes, very heavily. Um, it's actually my my husband was molested. Um, okay. I was sexually abused, and then when my husband sexually abused me, as, as when our marriage was just not right, like things that happened that weren't right at the time, even though I'm his wife, that doesn't mean that I have to yes. give into every yes. act, right? So he now fully admits, hey, I, I sexually abused my wife. But yes, I grew up in, in major sexual abuse. Okay, so you your spidey mm-hmm. senses were working and you just said, I got to get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, and I'm you know, grateful for, for that boyfriend at the time just saying, okay, because that was just, that was crazy. Who? I was your girlfriend. Okay, you don't have to go back there. Come home with me. So the divine inter- intervention, Christina, it's just always been there for me. Yeah, yeah. So you left. You're living with the boyfriend. Did your dad come looking for you? Did the police come looking yeah. for you? Yes, him and my stepmom. They. Um, I remember I, I called from a payphone and said, I'm not coming back. And... Um, the, their only concern was that by me not being in that home, they knew that the government money was in jeopardy, which was, so I honestly, I didn't even know that there was any money up until that point when my dad said, 
you come home and make it look like you didn't run away and I'll let you go because I can't lose this money. He was a heroin addict. Isn't he needed that, that money. And I went, what money? What are you talking about? And he told me and I, you know, F you, I'll be damned if I, no, you're not, you're not getting that money. No, I'm not coming back. <laughs> well, let me, um, but let they me, did, yeah, they didn't uh, care. Yeah. And uh, did you ever talk to him again when you, after you left? Yes, I did. Um, when I was 18, I reconnected with him. I actually ran into him at a local 7-Eleven, him and my stepmom. And uh, that was really odd. Hi, how are you? And this was the last time I had seen him at that point was in court. And uh, so you saw him at 7-Eleven getting nachos, and we connected. We had, I did try to rebuild a relationship with him later on down the line, um, tried to help him get sober. And it was just a train wreck. He, it was a train wreck. So that was, how old are you now? I am 41. So you haven't seen him or had been connected to him since then? I guess you said you were about 18. I was 18 when we reconnected at 7-Eleven. Then when we moved out to my husband and I and our six-month-old baby back in 2002 moved from uh, Maryland to Portland, Oregon. And a couple years passed. And we reconnected again. He actually came out to Portland after his wife died, my stepmom. He was really wanting to get help. And so we said, okay, you know, I I was ready to try and rebuild that relationship because all the pain, all the hurt, I was starting to recognize that it was for me, not to me. And uh, he came out to Portland and we tried to rebuild that again. That didn't work out. And after the Portland thing, when he left, so that was back in 2004 when my youngest daughter, Megan, was born. I didn't see him for 15 years. The last time I saw him was when I went back to Virginia last year to to uh, take him off of life support. Wow. And when your mom passed, what, did, she, did she pass from something drug-related? Or was she not She using? had a heart enlargement that was definitely drug-related, yeah. It it, it was, it's something that my family doesn't really like to talk about, and I don't have very much contact with them, but um, it, it was an overdose, a heart-related okay. overdose. Okay, okay. So you have, obviously you have, um, if there's a thing, um, you know, I know there's some debate about it, but you have the addiction gene. Yes, I would definitely say that I, the the rate of addiction in my family is just huge. I mean, it it goes back generations and generations and generations. So, so when did you? Yeah, I would. When, when and how did you start your your own struggle with addiction? How did that come about? Um, when so when I was living, when I was still at home, so about thirteen years old, I'd already started drinking at that point. I was. I was down a bottle of Boone Strawberry Hill uh, with no problem. And so that was how it started. And then when I left home, I I was, man, I was free. I can do whatever I want now. And just had, being 14, 15 years old and having this group of friends that were 19, 20, 21, it was, that's when all the street drugs came in. And I played around and experimented with so many things, got really bad with cocaine for a couple of years. And some meth-ish some meth came in, and um, but I was also dealing drugs. And what got me off of, what actually got me off of the street drugs was I was selling drugs at the time, and I was in a nightclub in D.C., and I approached 
a undercover officer to uh, offer her my wares. <laughs> and yeah. She uh, she looked at me, and again, divine intervention, right? She looked at me, and she said, I'm giving you three minutes to walk out of this club, and don't you ever walk back in here. And I went, oh, my God. And I left, and I I was like, okay, I, this is done. This is done. I'm not messing with this crap anymore. So that wow. was easy because I didn't want to go to prison. <laughs> and yeah. uh, then... So I was like, okay, I'm good now. Well, that's when, and then pharmaceuticals came in because I was able to substitute illegal cocaine and methamphetamine for legal amphetamines um, through doctors. And that started my 18-year prescription drug addiction. So what would you do? Just go and tell them that you had back pain or something? Yeah, it's, yep. Well, with, with the opiates, with the amphetamines, it was, I have an ADD diagnosis, so that was easy to get, the Adderall and the Ritalin and, and all of those things. And um, I always said that I was, I would never be like my dad. I would never be that heroin addict. So I thought, I'm better than that. I've never touched heroin. So I had my oldest daughter, Katie, who is uh, 17 now, when I had her, I had a really, really rough delivery, which ended up in a, um emergency C-section. And so they gave me super strong painkillers. And up until that point, I had never tried opiates. It had always been speed and uh, hallucinogens and things like that. They gave me those painkillers. And I remember sitting on her nursery room floor and saying, oh, no, I'm in trouble. And I just, I knew at that moment that I had turned that switch on. Yeah. And um, and then from that point on, it was just, it, it was easy. I mean, my dad, my dad taught me that how to be very manipulative and uh, and convincing and charismatic to get my way all the time. Well, it becomes, it becomes about survival. Mm -hmm. Getting the the drug. Right. I mean, I, and I mean, I know some things about it because I have some people that are close to me that have addiction issues. And at some point it's like, you're not really, you're not using the drug for fun anymore. You're just using it because you need to not get sick. Would you agree Uh with that? Oh my gosh, I cannot, I, I do not wish opiate withdrawal on my worst enemy. It is the most painful, most agonizing feeling I have ever felt in my life. Um, and how many times is, did you go through that? Oh, a couple dozen, dozens of times. Oh my God, Do- a dozens of times. Dozen. And, and while trying to raise young children, right, that was, I want to talk about that more, but I do want to back up a little bit. One thing I, I wanted to, to talk about is your experience. So you leave the house, you, you've dodged a major bullet. You're out of there. I mean, Lord knows if your father would have been pimping you out as a prostitute. You know, he was abusing you. Mm-hmm. So you finally get out of there. And does it feel like a relief? Or do you still feel like this heaviness, this weight on you when you leave? It definitely felt like a relief, but I just went from one, um, one toxic household, toxic relationship to to another. I walked into the same situation with my boyfriend. We were toxic together. He was toxic. I was toxic. Well, you didn't really know. I mean, to be fair, you didn't know what normal looks like, looks like. I hate to use the word normal, oh, but healthy, you know, <laughs> functional. You didn't know what it looked like. 
Right, exactly. So, you know, it was a huge relief. It, it was an absolute huge relief. I was free. Uh, I was free. But then you started using drugs, and that's the part that I'm interested in because, uh, and you know, everybody's experience is different. I feel like I was absolutely, completely terrified to ever use drugs. Like, I just, I don't know if the public service announcements worked, you know, Nancy Reagan's, because we're about the same age, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. And you remember in school, they would show us the videos, and they would show you, well, this is what happens when you use drugs, and you end up living on the street. And, you know, you you think you're Superman and you try to jump out a window. I I was terrified by all of that. I believed them. I thought that that would happen to me. (laughs) And I was terrified to use drugs. So you grew up in this dysfunctional environment. You saw what drugs does to people in in the worst way. So Mm -hmm. explain to me how come you were still willing to try it? Like, how come there wasn't part of you that was like, I want no part of it? What were you thinking when, you know, that this was happening? And I think a lot of people just think, well, I'll just try it, but I'm not going to get hooked on it. Do you think mm-hmm. that was Oh, you? absolutely. No, absolutely. I knew that I, I, I knew what my limits were. I will not do heroin. But I was, I was 15. I had a, I had a fake ID. I was getting into... DC nightclubs at 15 years old as a 21 year old. I had friends who were, who were University of Maryland students, 20 and 21 years old that were out partying all the time as, as they, as college students do. So I was in that world and. Yeah. And it was normal. Me, it it was normal. Like it, it was, it was normal. And I was, and it was almost, I almost felt prideful that, mm. Hey, here I am, this 15 year old kid that everyone's accepted and here I'm not partying with them while all these other 15 year olds are in 10th grade and I'm out, I'm not partying. Like I was a big party. I was a club kid and oh yeah. So at what point did you start to think, you know, I think maybe there was a problem here. When my ex and I committed felony bank fraud, um, which I mentioned in my Facebook post when I, when I, uh, the, the Facebook post that you were referencing that yeah. you reached out to me. Uh, yeah, we decided it was a really cool idea. It was a great scam going around where you, you, this, this stolen check, you put it in your bank account and you withdraw the money in such and such time. And, um, it was a, a $10,000 check and we did that with my bank account and we blew the money on Coke in about four to five weeks. Wow. That's when I I knew it was a problem. Like we were calling. When you're calling your dealer at 2 a.m. and meeting them at the gas station when the rest of the world is going to work, yeah. that's where you, you, you can recognize it's a problem. That's not for fun anymore. No, that's no. It was. It, 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 there were times where you couldn't, I couldn't even feel my nose. Like I couldn't breathe. And it was just, I knew that there was an issue. So what happened with the bank fraud? Did obviously you got caught? You used your own bank account, right? I got caught. Charges got dropped. Um, my the same attorneys who represented me for my emancipation knew upper level bank people, and I, I to this day I don't know. You know, Jimmy's dead now, and I, I wish I knew. I don't know what he said. I gave him. I fed him a bullshit story about where the check came from. 
Um, I think he knew that I was in this, this terrible relationship, this toxic relationship where I was being manipulated. And I would do whatever anybody told me to do, and especially when it came for things like money because it was for survival. And um, nothing, they, they just dropped all charges, and I walked away. I, again, I don't know how you that happened. You got lucky. I, I should have been in. I should have been in prison six or seven times over: but armed robbery, felony bank fraud, breaking and entering. You did an armed robbery. I orchestrated one. Yes. How on I, earth I was did you do that? Seat. And I, I'm not. I hope I don't sound judgy. I'm fascinated by no. this. I've lived a boring no. life. No, I, I, uh, I had some. Uh, some drug dealer friends who knew that I knew somebody who could get large quantities of ecstasy. And um, I set the whole thing up. I called the guy and said, hey, you know, like X number of pills, whatever. And so we, we met at a parking lot and uh, me and the other drug dealer got in his car and I was in the back seat when he pulled the gun on him and took his supply of ecstasy and we got out of the car and left so that that is a crazy story and how old were you when that happened i think it was about 17 when that happened that's amazing i mean you've done some crazy things in your life that some people will just never can't even comprehend right So tell me, you know, when, so you're plotting along, you know, doing all this stuff at, at one, at what point do you start to realize that, you know, I can't live like this forever. I mean, did, was there a point where you were just like, am I going to do this forever? Like, where does this road go? That was that that only happened two years ago, Christina. And oh man, we got to we got to talk fast because yeah. we got a lot to cover. Yeah. When did you meet your husband? We met. I was nineteen, uh, twenty years old, and he had already graduated college. He had his bachelor's degree. He had recently just got out of the Marine Corps, and he decided that he wanted to take a uh, just he had some GI Bill to burn up. So he took an abnormal psychology class at. Montgomery College in Rockville, Maryland, and I was in the same class, and we met. Wow. I was still in that same relationship that I was in when I left home. I was We were engaged. We were getting married and all of that fun stuff, and I met Mike. Um, we did a couple projects in school together in that class, got to know each other some. I, I, totally not my type. Totally not my type. <laughs> In fact, the first thing I said to him ever was I was laughing at his shoes. I was like, oh, my God, who wears Chuck Taylors anymore? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, now um, they're popular we, again. Oh, yeah. Now I have, like, 40 pairs myself, right, all different colors and stuff. Um, so, yeah, we one night my uh, ex-fiance and I were getting ready to go out and, and going out to the club like we did every Friday night. And I said, yeah, this kid in my class is the one to have a drink, and I'm going to call him and see if he wants to meet up with us. He met up with us at the club, and my ex and I got in a massive fight at the club, and I was—I did the same thing I did when I left my dad's house. I said, I'm not doing this anymore, and I asked Mike to give me a ride to my girlfriend's house, and um, she wasn't home, so I went back to his apartment, and we have been together since that night. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Did you have a fight because of Mike? He he, yeah, he got a little, my ex got a little, little irritated. Mike bought me a drink. Like he had promised me all semester to buy me a drink. And 
I still have the receipt for that drink, which is really funny. Um, and he was, yeah, he was yelling at me in the parking lot. And, and I told him, I, I walked away. I'm, I'm not coming back. I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So, but you're going to school mm-hmm. while you're doing all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing yep. because usually something has to take a back seat and it's usually school. But you were getting good grades. You were moving along with your degree. No, I was. I was. Like, I was a C student. Okay, but you were passing, which I is mean, kind of miraculous considering everything else that was going on. Yeah, I. I definitely found there was there was a, I was able to party and go to school, and I guess that's the. Being early, in your late teens, early twenties, <laughs> it's easy to be out drinking all night and still pop yourself into school and, and work. Right? Yeah. I, I was working too, work, school, uh, everything. Um, I only ended up doing a few, a year and a half of community college, but I still, so, still did it. Yeah, you. But you were doing it, and it, and I assume it was to better yourself, and you know, have other career <laughs> aspirations, right? And yes. you must have been the first one to go to college, were you? I was. But, I was. But then you said that Mike had some of his own demons. So what, was he using drugs too? No, no, my husband, um, he he drank really heavily. He was an alcoholic. Okay, okay. so he <clears throat> was, he was, that was his drug of choice. Yep. Was he already really engrossed in that by the time you met him? Oh yeah, our our entire relationship was was we go out, we go out drinking, and we go to football games. We were we were Baltimore Ravens season ticket holders, and that's what we did. We went out every weekend drinking and going to football games and watching sports. Like that was, and that was a huge struggle when he got sober. It was like, so what do we have in common anymore? Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. So, 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 just so that I understand, so you meet Mike, you know, head over heels right away. He's drinking. Yep. You're still using drugs. Yeah, I was. By that point, I was just using prescription amphetamines. When uh, he and I met, that was what I was really heavily addicted to. So you sort of and became drinking. a professional shopper, a professional oh, drug shopper. I know there's For a sure. whole methodology to that, which we don't need to get into. We don't want to teach yeah, people how to yeah. do it. But um, no. so you and how many years would you say you were using the, the opiates? I guess they're opioids, the synthetic drugs. Yeah. yeah um, so Katie's 17, so 15 years. Wow. And that's a long time. And it was. Yeah, 15 years. and But it wasn't just opiates. Like, I had a, when you say professional shopper, like, I had a calendar, and this week was opiates. This week was sleeping pills. This week was amphetamines. This week was um, benzodiazepines because I didn't want to, uh, I was trying to, to make sure I constantly had this. It was, it was insanity. When I had to tell my husband, when I finally came clean to him about all of this stuff, he was just, his jaw was on the floor. So at, he didn't know? How detailed. He didn't know. He knew. He he knew, but he didn't know. He I was really good at, at, at lying and making things up and and um he knew I had a problem. And when he lost his so three years ago, this when our entire world just collapsed, he had 
he was an executive. He was working in corporate America, and um, we had come out to St. Louis for a really, really well-paying job. And um, he lost that job really quickly because when we came out to St. Louis, everything got even worse with me, and the drugs were easier to access. Oh, really? And there were there were doctors who were, oh, we should put you back on this drug, and we should put you back on this, and you need more of this. Did anybody? Oh, okay. Did any doctor ever question you to see if you had, if you were shopping or if you were at an addict? No, and not one. Like, not one. No, my, no, my husband actually one time called my psychiatrist and said, "You, she is abusing this stuff. You are giving her too much." And the next appointment I went into, he mentioned that to me and. I said, oh, he is just, you know, he's filing for divorce. He doesn't want to be with me anymore. And he's trying to, he, he's trying to, 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 to take all of my coping. My, I can't remember what I said, but it was. You, you did said, some oh, tap okay. dancing. Yeah. And, sure. and they just gave yeah, it my, to you. And they said, okay, here. Yep. Yep. Oh, that makes me so mad. That makes me yeah, so mad. It, it's, it's sad. That's another topic, but it's, it's just too easy to get it. It's far too easy to get it. It's definitely it's definitely gaining a lot of attention, and I'm seeing that that especially with the the opiate epidemic, epidemic um, like hospitals, that's not their first route to help you deal with pain anymore, which is really cool. When my my 17 year old had a very major cheerleading injury in, a couple months ago, and took her, I had to go take her to the ER, and they didn't even offer her narcotics at all. Well, that's good to hear. And her. It, it was really good, and I remember saying to her, and my children are very, there is nothing that they do not know about what I've gone through. They've seen it. They've witnessed it. How they've old been are they? In it. So they are 17 and 15. And that's that's good because it's part of who you are. Do you think that they have, are, are they of the feeling that, well, I'm never going to try it because I know that it it had a substantial impact on my mom's life and I'm not going to try it. Do they ever talk about that? That's, that's kind of what, what I, I get. And I know my oldest daughter, we have discussions, very open discussions about her um, decision to, to go out and, and try things. And she knows that, like, I don't know everything she's tried. I'm sure she smoked some weed. I'm sure she's had some drinks, but the, the dialogue is always open. Um, she seems fearful of it. She always has a plan. She never has gotten herself into a situation that's been questionable. Um, so I, I think I, I think that they got to see enough to where they will party maybe, but they won't get themselves caught up in it. I, so I hope. Yeah. Just keep the, the dialogue open. So you endured this for many, many years. You and your husband together, you embroiled in your addiction, he embroiled in his. And But you said that this all came to a head only really in the past few years. What mm-hmm. was that? So um, we moved up to St. Louis in 2013. And Again, just, just things just got really bad really quickly. And he was working and working for a, a big uh, uh, coke manufacturing plant out here, a, a steel, kind of a steel plant. And he was running the plant, and I was getting worse and worse. And um, he lost that job after 16 months just because he was showing up to work hungover and just, just could not 
do his job optimally. He uh, had a really good severance package with that. We drank the severance package away for a few months. He got another job man, um, running a small firearms manufacturing facility, and same thing, 16 months later, he was fired from that job. And I say fired because he didn't lose his job. He wasn't laid off. He was fired. And after that happened, he decided that that something had to change. Um, so I, I credit him for saving my life because it, it, he was the one that said, I'm quitting drinking. I'm starting my own business. You come with me or this is not going to work. And you know, we had thrown divorce at each other so many times before that I thought, oh, that's, he's not going to do anything. Well, he did. He filed for divorce. And he was and, serious, right? He was leaving. Yeah. Yeah, he was leaving. He went to the lawyer. He paid the retainer. He filed the papers. And that was when I kind of freaked out. I don't want to lose my husband. I love this man. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my life. So that happened. And then, so I just, (laughs) I hid it better for another year. Really? So you still hid it from him? He didn't know? (laughs) For another year. And then I'm so, I can't comprehend how you hide something like that, but I, I, people do it. People I've heard stories about it. It's so hard for me to comprehend though, how you hide that, especially when you live together. It is so much manipulation and so much deceitfulness and so much, so many secrets. Now my 17 year old would always know she was, she's very intuitive and she's, some, mom is not okay. Something's wrong with mom. Mom is slurring again. Mom is driving erratically again. And I would tell my, so I was, I was having seizures at the time too. So I always blamed it on having seizures and the seizures were related to drug use. Um, so because my husband was so close to it, he didn't want to see it. So he didn't see it. So in August of 2017, where I finally just, he had started, so he had started building his company and I could see that he was heading towards success and I could see that he was heading towards being somebody who was very public and very well known. And I knew that I, I knew I have two choices to make. I cannot stand by him being this train wreck of a person in and out of jail and calling him to bail me out and all of these things. So I just, the eclipse of 2017 happened in August and something just happened to me. And I, I just knew it couldn't, I couldn't look like that anymore. You had your wake up um, call. I, I, it was, it was a, I call it my soul quake. That's what it felt like. It was, it was a soul quake. Wow. My wake up call. So what did you do? I laid all of my secrets out to my husband and my family. I told them the truth about so many things. And I started working on healing all of the trauma that drove me to use. Because that is the true gateway drug is trauma. Yeah. I totally agree um, with that. But did you go to? Really did you have began. to go to a detox? Did you have to go? To um, this I did not go to detox. This time I did it on my own, and which was good because I felt every ounce of the pain and every ounce of the discomfort, and I 
burned that into my brain that I never want to feel that again. So what was that like, day? What was the what was the day of the soul quake? Oh goodness gracious! What was what was the, the whatever the day of the eclipse was in August of 2017? Was it the 21st? Maybe I don't I don't, I don't I can't remember the exact date. Um, so it's been about it, two and it well a little more than two years. Yeah, about two and a half years now. And therapy? Did you do therapy? I had done so much therapy. I every therapist I went to, they wanted wanted to focus on the past and I just I was no longer interested in being in that that area. So I hired a coach and here's what I want, here's who I want to be. And they helped me get to to the confidence to be that person. So I the therapy thing, it was very beneficial. It's just I'm not not now. I'm not doing therapy right now, no. So you and your husband both clean and sober? We are? Yeah. We are. Both yeah. of us. Excellent. He's, he hasn't had a, he has he hasn't had a drink in over three years and I've been I've been on the path for a couple of years now. So yeah, everything our family is healing, we're healing, building successful businesses and uh just helping inspire and motivate and, and guide other people. What was the hardest part about kicking that addiction? Feeling having to feel yeah, not being and numb feel, anymore. And yeah, having to actually feel the pain of of being abandoned and and being hurt by the person who's supposed to take care of you. You know, looking back in those years of of my childhood and healing healing that inner child, and and that that's one of the biggest things is with with people going through these these changes in life is is going back and loving on that little child who was void of love when they were little. How do you do that? So what I do is I do a lot of visualization and I will visualize little Angie and I will go into meditation and I will hold her hand and I will hug her and just hold her and just visualize holding the little six-year-old me who, because that's when my life began to fall apart was when my mom passed away and that little girl in the funeral home, that's who I hold on to. I just hug her and her little purple dress and her red hair. So even though your mom had her own issues, you always felt safe and loved by her. I, um, I never lived with her. That's, that's in, in, that, that's, that would take a whole other hour. I, <laughs> I put her on a pedestal as an adult because, or as, as I was growing up because I didn't know her. But truth be told, she didn't want me. I never lived with her. I always oh. lived with my grandma until she, in, until my mom passed away and my dad remarried. And then that's when my dad and my stepmom took me into their home because my stepmom had a child who was four years older than me. So up until that point, I had never lived with either of my parents. My grandma was my person. Yeah. Well, thank God for grandparents because so many yes. times they're the ones that step up to the plate. When mom and dad can't get it together. So thank God for for all those grandmas and grandpas out there. So it hasn't really been that long. It's been long enough that it's like, okay, it's in the past. But it hasn't been so long that 
it's a very distant memory. So do you have times where you, you know, have any sort of cravings or you have the desired like, oh, you know, maybe I could just have one night where I try something and it'll be okay. Do you ever have those moments? And what do you do? Any any time that I think, because I, and I do, and, and that is very typical of somebody in recovery, is mm-hmm. you block out the, the bad parts, right? I I remember the bad parts. Like, I, I, oh, yeah, I'll think, oh, man, just one Xanax to help me sleep. You know, I, I could do that. And then I remember that taking Xanax leads me to handcuffs and another sex charge. And, again, that's a whole other story. Um, Whoa, how so do we skip that? I, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Xanax just causes you to feel like you're invincible and you just walk out of stores with stuff. And so I have several stuff on my record from from those days. So I, I don't want that. My dreams and knowing my purpose is bigger than that. Yeah, so tell me how, so let's get on to maybe something not, not so depressing, but yeah. how did you... Um, you know, how did Mike start the business? And I know that you guys, um, if people Google you, they'll find some YouTube videos and some messaging out there where you actually coach people that have had some addiction issues themselves, which I think is great because you guys can totally understand because you've been through it. So tell me more about the coaching. Um, so my husband works, he, his, his zone is being a business strategist. He has a corporate background, he has a master's degree, and he loves getting in there and working with the executives and strategizing and helping build businesses. Um, the coaching thing came, came by when he chose to get sober, he had a uh, good friend that he got his master's degree with who was coaching at the time and offered to help him. And I remember he was paying to hit this, his coach like $200 a month, which is nothing in the world of coaching. And I was like, what is this? Go to therapy. What is a coach going to do for you, right? And as he was working with his coach and he was starting to see results and he was starting to see his personal power building, he noticed that he had been doing that all of his years in corporate. He had been building teams. He had been building strategy sessions. So it came to be that, Angie, I I want to be a coach. Like, what are you talking about? You need to go get a job because we need insurance. And That's a typical concern. That's like a whole mindset thing, right? We don't have enough time for that, but yeah. Yeah. So he started doing all this networking and I was in the background freaking out and laughing at him and telling him to go to therapy because I don't know what this whole coaching thing is even about. And um, he got his first client, then he got his second client, then he got his third client, then he got his big corporate client. And I went, oh, this is real. And then he started writing a book and then we started being asked to speak and then we started being asked to show up at different events and leadership things and and it's like, oh wow, this is this is really real. We can really do this. And now three years in, and uh, I couldn't imagine if I, I. I'm so glad I didn't get what I wanted back then. Are you writing a life that I live? You you need to write. I a book. I am. I am. Um, mine will be a memoir. His yeah. is more of a personal development book with a lot of our personal stories in it. Um, 
he was able to interweave those, but it's very personal development focused. But yes, I do. I have, I have lots of pieces of my memoir put together already. I, what I love about your story and, and people like you is that it's so easy to see someone who, you know, was strung out on drugs and got in trouble with the police and, you know, didn't come from like, you know, a, a picture perfect family and to just assume that, uh, you know, they're never going to amount to anything. But sometimes mm-hmm. they do. Right. And it's sort of yeah. like just getting out of their own way. And I would want people who maybe are struggling with with some of the things that you've struggled with in the past really to not give up on themselves to actually believe that things could be different for them and Mm -hmm. whoever's out there whatever your situation is it can be different for you and something and and the most important thing to know is that you are enough and your story matters and your voice matters and it doesn't matter if people are, I get judged constantly when I put these so personal, so raw, yeah. so vulnerable things out on social media and standing on stages and, and, and saying these things. And I can't believe she's telling people that. It doesn't matter. My inbox reflects that I'm helping someone every single time I do that. And when I was saying in the beginning, my life has been divided into these four segments and now I'm at this black piece where I turned my pain into purpose. And I know that all three of those old Angie's are here to help elevate other people and motivate them. Well, I don't know if you follow David Nagel. I mention him almost every single show, but um, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's a, are you familiar with him? Yeah, yes. And you know what? I became familiar with him when I, at the, at the, uh, Retreat that you and I met at when you all were talking about him. Oh, that's right. Yes. So, I mean, he always says to find the gift in whatever experience you've Mm -hmm. had. You know, like it's easy to kind of get down on yourself and and say, oh, God, I had a terrible childhood and, you know, be mad at people because they didn't love you and take care of you the way that perhaps they should have. But there is a gift there somewhere. And Mm -hmm. I think the trick is seeing it. And appreciating it. But I think you do. It sounds like you do. You wouldn't be the person you are now if you didn't have all those experiences. And there are are people that will trust you so much more because you can relate to what they've experienced. Right, right. And, you know, nothing, nothing happened to me. It all happened through me, for me. That was a big shift for me. Yeah. So if people want to reach out to you to find out more about your story, to perhaps hire you for a speaking engagement, or even find out more uh-huh. about your coaching, how do they do yes. that? Um, you can find me on all social media. I'm Angie Kitko, K-I-T-K-O. I don't have my own website. Um, so social media, I'm always on there. That's where I share a lot of my story. Um, you can also go to... Um, our website, MikeKitco.com, and learn more about our executive coaching and the courses that we've developed, and uh, to learn more about my husband's first book, which is The Imposter in Charge, was just released two weeks ago today. That's awesome. Did he self-publish that? or well, I guess we don't have enough time to even get into that, but I'm fascinated by that. No, we did not self-publish. Awesome. We actually, um, he hired a, a book coach, someone who helped coach him through the process of making of, of a very professionally written book. And um, 
she has her own publishing house. So it was a local St. Louis publisher. So we do have the global distribution rights, which is really cool. And I'm happy to send you a copy of it, Christina. Please do. I would love to read it. And I can't wait to read your memoir. So I hope that you are going to make that a priority. And I think there's so many people listening that would love to hear more about all these experiences you had and even more so how you overcame them. But that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I think it was helpful for me and I certainly hope some other people got something out of it. And I will have some links for people if you want to reach out to Angie and hear more about her personal story. But thank you for listening to Wake Up Call. Thank you for having me, Christine. I appreciate it.